Today we begin part 15. Part 15 of our study in the book of 2 Timothy. It's been a long, a long time coming, and today will be the conclusion of this story. And I would encourage you, um, next week will be a very unique sermon. If you enjoy the theater, well, then you will enjoy the sermon next week. That's all I'll say. Paul's writing this letter from prison. It's 64, 67 A.D., This has often been referred to as his last will and testament. He'll shortly die after this letter is written. He's writing to Timothy, the young man he's been mentoring, his protege. He is trying to encourage Timothy to keep going, to continue to persevere in the faith. That's the theme. I say it every week. And in case there's any misconception, let me just clarify right now. When I say persevere in the faith, I think oftentimes we think of, well, I just need to roll up my sleeves, and just muscle through difficult circumstances. It is, after all, the American spirit. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not, Timothy, just keep going because you've got what it takes, Timothy, and because you're awesome. That's not it. If that's what you think it is, you're missing it. It's Timothy, continue, press on, even when it gets hard, not because you're awesome, but because... God is awesome. After all, back in chapter 1, he says, he didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Like, he's already equipped you, Timothy. You have what it takes because he's given it to you. Because our God is awesome. Don't miss that. I hope you don't miss that. I hope you don't misconstrue that when it comes to persevering in our Christian lives. But that is no doubt the theme of this story. As he writes to Timothy, the young pastor at the church of Ephesus, which is modern-day western Turkey. For a more detailed introduction to this series, part one of this series, which is on SoundCloud, um, you can find it there. But that's all I want to say is by way of the introduction. So I want to get right into our text, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Maybe you've had something similar to this happen. Where you have friends bail on you. You have people who you thought had your back, only to not have it. To utterly disappoint you. This guy knows very much what that feels like sucks. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Understand this, that in the Roman legal system, an individual who was accused of a crime would have two hearings. The first hearing, which he references here, my first defense, would be to establish the charges brought against him. It would operate very similar to our grand jury system today. The, the role, or the goal, excuse me, of that first hearing was not to determine, as I said, the guilt or the innocence, but really to determine whether or not there was a legitimate case to be made. 
or whether it was just frivolous and needed to be dismissed. And so they'd come together and they'd hear all the evidence presented. Once again, the goal, not to determine whether Paul's innocent or guilty, but whether or not this has the legs to go further in the proceedings. That's what he's referencing here. Very similar to our, as I said, to our grand jury system. And at this time, he says, no one was there. No one came to my defense. No one no one was there. No one stood by me. Stood by me. That phrase at times can translate to testify on one's behalf. No one was there. They all left him. They left him when you might say he needed them more than ever. Of course, how do we reconcile this with the reference to faithful Luke in chapter 4? Or if you remember from almost three months ago, Onesphorus, who he says, he refreshed me daily. He was not ashamed or embarrassed at all that there were all these charges, the people were saying all this crap about me. He wasn't embarrassed. He was there by my side. What about those guys? Are are they in here? And I think by all accounts, absolutely not. Most commentators say, for whatever reason, Onesphorus and Luke are not there. As he's writing this letter to Timothy, he's referencing an event that happened, who knows, a month, six months, 12 months earlier? We don't know, but it happened earlier on. And at that time, it seems that Onesphorus and Luke were not present. Maybe they were on their way to him, but they're, they're not there. For surely if they had been there, they would have stood by him. They would have, if they needed to, suffered his own fate. It wouldn't make any sense at all for him to say, all have deserted me. And then only back in cha- earlier in chapter 4 and back in chapter 1 to have all these great things to say about Onesiphorus and Luke. So by all accounts, they're not here when he's referencing his first defense. They all deserted me. Well, Christianity is new. It's upcoming. It is g- gaining notoriety throughout the world at this time. And... There is no Google search engine. There is no news reports. And so the fact that in the capital city of Rome, there's this high-profile Christian who's having a hearing would have no doubt drawn the attention of many people just curious. I want to hear what this guy has to say. Oh, and what a treat. He's here in Rome. In fact, some commentators believe because of the nature of of Paul being a very high-profile representative of Christianity that Nero himself, perhaps, may have presided over the trial. Nero was vehemently anti-Christian. Very, very much opposed. In fact, he would take the Christians, and especially in, 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 in the surrounding areas of Rome, there was really felt that severe and intense persecution, but they would take the Christians and sew them up in animal skins while they were alive, and then toss them into the Colosseum to be devoured by wild beasts. I still remember from my high school world history class hearing about how Nero would use the Christians as human candlesticks, only again to come across my research this very week and to read about the same historical remarks. To light his imperial palace at night, they could say they could hear the screams coming from the imperial palace of Nero where he would use the Christians as human candlesticks. Which is why some commentators think that there's a strong possibility he may have even been the one to preside over the trial. And also why some of these people may have deserted. 
as we saw a little bit last week with Demas. A lot of people are very much fair-weather disciples. Whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this, right? People are being sewn up in animal skins and tossed and eaten and torn apart by wild dogs or used as human candlesticks. Yeah, that's, 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 that's more Jesus than I thought I was getting into, right? I, I did not sign up for that. It's no surprise, nor excuse, but no surprise why no, no one's there. Why people have deserted him. And yet, notice what he says. May it not be charged against them. He has people. People close to him. People that he cares about. People that he thought had his back. Leave him. Chapter 1, all those in Asia, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Chapter 4, Demas, Alexander the coppersmith. And oh, by the way, a reference here to perhaps even more who've left him and deserted him. What does he say? May it not be charged against him. It's very reminiscent of Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen, as he's being martyred. Very reminiscent of Christ statement. Paul has this amazing forgiving spirit, which, to be perfectly honest, is hard to have. When you, when you have people who you think are your WMFL, wingman for life, when you have people who are supposed to be loyal to you, to stab you in the back, to not be there when you actually need them to be there. Oh, by the way, these people are professing Christians. It's a lot of hurt and pain. It sucks. I still remember my first year in seminary back in 2009. I had evangelism with Dr. Wheeler in a small 25, 30-person class. I still remember what he said. I've shared the quote several times. He said, some of the people that hurt me the worst, that were the meanest, nastiest people, were people that were in the church with me. When we think of the theme of this letter, persevering in the faith no matter what, I think oftentimes where our mind goes to imprisonment and torture, but most of the context of this letter is not that. I mean, he's in prison while he's writing this, but it's people who've left him. They should never have left him, and they've left him. That's a lot of hurt. Some of you have felt it. You know what that feels like. I've felt it. You've felt it. And it is not always that easy to have that sort of mindset. It's not what he does. God, that we may all have Paul's forgiving spirit because it is a model of, of your attitude. Like, may it not be charged against them. They've heard him, and yet he wants to forgive them. Man, God help us to be like Paul. So then he goes on to verse 17. And this is what he says. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. God stood by me, so very much in contrast to all those who deserted him, all those who peaced out, they've gone the other way. He says, God, he stood by me. God, he didn't leave me. God was there. God was there. In contrast to everyone else, he was constant. He was faithful. And he strengthened me. He strengthened me. To what end? That through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles who hear it. I'm thinking, right? This is the high-profile court case. And people, I mean, people probably, high-profile Roman citizens, Gentiles, people probably had too much time on their hand. They're like, what else is there to do, right? I mean, uh, there's no Netflix, there's no Hulu. I mean, people would have been coming just for the sake of entertainment to come and hear what this guy has to say. And what does he say? He said, God strengthened me so that they might hear the message, that they might hear the message that there is salvation by no other name under heaven except the name of Jesus Christ, that, that God created this world. It was perfect. It was good. It was flawless. And then Romans 5.12, through one man, our father Adam, sin entered the world. Sin, rebellion, disobedience to God. Sin was like a virus. It quickly contaminated everything that by God's design was good and just warped it. That we inherit that sinful nature and that while God is a loving God, He is a just God. He must punish sin. And the punishment for sin is eternal separation. The punishment for sin is hell. Why? Because God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He can't be around the presence of sin. He must punish it. They're hearing this message. Oh, I wonder what was going through their minds as they're hearing Paul proclaim this message. The message is that every single one of us are in rebellion against the king. And the king, the king must punish rebellion. He must punish sin and disobedience. And that punishment is hell. Eternal separation. I wonder what was going through everyone's minds as they hear this message proclaimed in that packed out, jam-packed courtroom, I imagine. And then to hear him tell us the good news, the good news to this really, really bad news. But God shows his love for us. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, and while we were still haters of God, Romans 1, 30, we are haters of God. Or Romans 5.10, we are enemies of God. Or Romans 8.7, even our minds, our thoughts are opposed to God. Christ died for us. God sends his only son, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, lives a perfect, sinless life, fully God, fully man, and is nailed to a tree. He's nailed to the cross. He's crucified. He's buried, and three days later, he rises from the grave, conquering sin and death. Oh, I know that you've probably heard that story before, but that is a very good story. God, help us not to be bored by that story. Sometimes you get bored. You hear that story a lot. I know it's not a boring story. That salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. 
You can't make it happen. You cannot make it happen. Right? Why? You're saved by grace so that no one may boast. So you can't get to heaven and say, hey, look at my resume. Look at my pedigree. Look how freaking awesome I am. Nope! Nope, that's not going to happen. Ever. And that there's two aspects of salvation. Anybody know what they are? Two things required for salvation? My man Lee right here and some other folks here. Faith and repentance. I don't know. I, I grew up, I didn't know faith and repentance were, were part of salvation. It's like, oh yeah, faith, that makes sense. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, believe in the gospel. Faith and repent of your sins. And, and when I say faith, we, we talk about like faith is like faith is belief, right? Um, I, I don't want to stop there. I don't want to shorten or abbreviate faith too much. I, I, I like Ray Comfort's definition that he uses the illustration of the parachute. So you jump out of the airplane, you've got the parachute on, and it's parachute or hit the ground. Like, I'm trusting that parachute. If that parachute doesn't save me, I'm dead. So trusting Jesus like I would a parachute. It's not like, okay, I'm trusting Jesus, but I'm also trusting that I'm also a good person or that I was infant baptized or whatever it may be. Like, it's Jesus or bust. It's Jesus or nothing. I'm trusting solely in what Jesus did and that he lived the life I couldn't live and that he died the death I could not die. I could not die. That he paid the price I could not afford to pay. I'm trusting Jesus solely and completely for what he has done. Only Jesus can save me from the wrath of God. from the just God who must punish sin. The scriptures say he became the propitiation for our sin. That word means he took the wrath and justice of God the Father and he turned it to favor so that when God looks at those of us who've actually placed our faith in him in that way, he sees us as forgiven. He sees us as the debt's been paid. They're free to go. And Satan's accusatory power ends right there. And when I say repentance, I don't mean I feel bad or I cried. I mean like I turn from my sin, a 180 degree turn, a change of heart. When Jesus saves us, Jesus changes us. And this is really important because a lot of people in the South, and we are in the South, we're below the Mason-Dixon line. Some of you are like, no, we're not. We're in the South, northern South. This is where it gets sticky because a lot of people says, oh, I done did that, Pastor. I prayed that prayer. Okay, I rededicated my life. I'm good to go. I'll see you next Easter. So I like to articulate repentance really, really clearly. Repentance is a 180-degree turn. It's a, it's a change of, of, of our, our heart and our mind, a change and in inclination toward Jesus, toward the cross, a turning from our sin. It's a growing in holiness, a growing in holiness. Let me be really clear. If you're a Christian and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then you say in the same breath, but nothing in my life has ever really changed, you should be really concerned. You should be really concerned. If you say you're a Christian, but nothing in your life has ever changed. Sanctification's a process. Isn't it a process, Joe? Of course it's a process. There are better days and weeks. There are ups and downs. Valleys and hills. But, be sure that you understand this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you say you're a Christian and nothing in your life has ever changed, 
It's entirely possible you've not actually met Jesus in a saving way. Because it's impossible to meet Jesus and nothing change. Because Jesus, He changes everything. He changes everything. And I would rather you realize this now. Crap, I might not actually be a Christian. I might just know a bunch of head knowledge about Him and that's it. Then go on pretending that you are something that you're not, only to face him in the next life and be totally unprepared. And so that's what these people are hearing. They're in the courtroom. I imagine some of their minds are just, whoa. Think about it. Like some of these people probably maybe are being converted, are, are being regenerated, are being saved right there. I mean, for all we know, at the very least, seeds are being planted. They're hearing Paul proclaim this message. It's a good message. It's a great message. Think about it. Paul is maybe not where he wants to be right now. Maybe some of you, you're not where you want to be. Maybe you're stuck in a place you don't want to be. Maybe you're stuck in a job you don't want to be. You're stuck in a major you don't want to be. You're stuck in, with a roommate you don't want to be with. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just less than preferred circumstances. May I point out one thing to you? Paul's circumstances, fair to say, less than preferred. Paul's circumstances have given birth to an opportunity to advance the gospel. Something to think about the next time you find yourself in circumstances that are not preferred. Right? Why am I here, God? Oh, there's no accident. You're not there. By accident, when you find yourself in those less than preferred circumstances. And it very well might be in the same way that Paul is there, feeling abandoned, feeling alone, and yet God is there with him, he says, strengthening him so that he might tell other people about Jesus. (laughs) And so he's in this unique situation, circumstance that he wouldn't otherwise be in. He wouldn't otherwise be there. Some of these people might not hear about the gospel, but with the exception that he's on trial. God is a big God. And when those less than preferred circumstances come, it's no accident. You do not have a small, puny God who is caught off guard and surprised to find out that you're in a less than ideal circumstance, that you're in a less than preferred situation. Never. Never. And then he says, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It is a phrase also found in Psalms chapter 22, verse 21, where the psalmist says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. It has led commentators to differ on how we should understand to him being saved from the lion's mouth. We know that Paul's going to die, so in what way is he been rescued from the lion's mouth. Do we understand the lions as literal lions, as a reference to Satan, as a reference to Nero? We don't know. Perhaps the, the lions are a reference to literal lions, and he's spared a cruel death. Church history tells us that he was beheaded. But beyond that, beyond that I can't say, 
much certainty at all. But he won't meet death, at least not at the moment. Not yet. Verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Once again, how, how are we to understand this protection? Physical? Spiritual? He's already made it very clear early on in chapter 4 that he is poured out. He is already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure has come. It seems like the interpretation of verse 18 as physical deliverance would contradict his earlier statements in chapter 4. Not only that, but Paul doesn't promise anyone safety. In fact, I mean, much of this letter is Timothy. Buckle up. Right? I mean, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. I mentioned this last week, that the Christian life is not one filled with lollipops and roses. It's not. All the disciples, with the exception of John the Elder, according to church history, lived to die a martyr's death. Lived to die a martyr's death. So I think the best way to understand what he is saying here, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, is an optimism that he will be rescued from the many spiritual attacks that have come against him. As one commentator, Kelly, says, Paul is affirming his confidence that no assault of his enemies will undermine his faith, his courage, or cause him to lapse into disastrous sin, that he will overcome the spiritual forces arrayed against him. He feels maybe alone. Maybe he's tempted to to give up, to not finish the race well, to give in to some temptation. No. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Oh, it might be. Safely bringing me into the heavenly kingdom might be with the sword. That might be the doorway into the heavenly kingdom. But I am confident, as he would say to the Philippians, that he who begin a good work in me, he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. He will heal. He will hold me. He will keep me. He won't let me stumble. To him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm thankful that we have a big God that can hold us up in those moments of weakness. I'm thankful that we have a big God who is more superior than our enemy, that is more superior than the temptations that we face. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 19 and following. And you might not think it's going to get interesting here. That's what I thought. But it is. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Prisca is a shortened version of Priscilla. Just like Joe is a shortened version of Joseph. Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know what spiritual significance this may be, but I thought it was interesting. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in Scripture. And in this culture, it's interesting that the wife's name comes first on four of those six occasions. Why it is, I can't say with any certainty. I just thought it was interesting. Some commentators believe that it comes first because she was of a more wealthy or well-connected class in the aristocracy, or that she may have had a more 
forceful personality. But Paul knows them. Paul knows them because he met them on a second missionary journey in Corinth. They had actually fled Italy, went to Corinth, when Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews expelled from Rome back in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And of course, Onisphorus, we know Onisphorus. Onisphorus is awesome. Onisphorus, back in chapter 1, he's refreshed me daily. You have some people, I hope, in your life. Those people are awesome. They're like Onisphorus. They are just the opposite of those people that suck you emotionally and drain you, they're Onisphorus. They, like, fill you up. That's Onisphorus. He says, tell him I said hi, too. I love Onisphorus. Oh, by the way, Onisphorus wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't ashamed. We know that back in chapter 1. For any of the circumstances that I, Paul, found myself. And then he goes on to say this, Erastus, verse 20, remained at Corinth, and I left Tropimus, who was ill at Miletus. Much to say here in this passage. And I think the first observation that I'd like to make is the fact that Tropimus is ill. Especially in today's context of faith healers or word of faith healers. This is interesting for someone who's done miracles before. Someone who's, who's done miracles. I've never healed someone. Paul has. Tropimus is ill. You say, heal him. He's done it before. It's an interesting note. Think about that, right? He's healed people before. Why mention that he's ill? And if he's ill, he cares for Tropimus, why not just heal him? And the fact that there's this passing reference, I think, and I I actually pulled multiple commentaries off the shelf for this because I'm like, eh, this is probably someone who's just like a cessationist and, and they don't believe in you know, modern-day gifts. But, but this is what I thought was interesting. The passing reference to Tropimus' sickness indicates that the miracles of healing were not produced at the demand of an apostle. He's healed people before. Paul's healed people. He's healed them. Why doesn't he heal Tropimus? And the fact that he doesn't heal Tropimus, I think, is an indicator that, at least at this time, Miracles of healing were not produced at the demand of an apostle, which I would argue that Paul has probably more authority than any other modern-day faith, faith healer who claims to be an apostle. He has more authority. Think about that. They weren't produced at his demand, but rather, I would submit to you, such miracles of healing were the evidence of divine power, God's power carried out by the will of God. When healing happened, it's because God healed them, because it was God's will to heal them. It didn't come just as a demand, because you've got to think, if Paul could heal them, he'd heal them. This is buddy Tropimus. But for whatever reason, that's not an option right now. And so, he says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Tropimus, who was ill, at Miletus. It's really important for Paul that he lets Timothy know that these guys, despite everyone else who've left him, who've abandoned him, these guys have not left him. Like, he's like, he wants to say, listen, Timothy, these two guys, it's not an unexcused absence. Okay? Let me just be really clear. The reason they're not here has nothing to do with them not being faithful. I know we've dealt with a lot of people who've just bailed on me and dropped the ball. These guys aren't in that category. Erastus remained at Corinth. 
Romans chapter 16, 23. It's very possible this Erastus is the same Erastus who is the city treasurer at Corinth who sent his greeting through Paul to the church at Rome. And of course, Tropimus. Tropimus. Tropimus the Ephesian. Would it surprise you if I told you that indirectly Tropimus is actually the reason why Paul is in Rome right now in prison? I thought about this. Oh, Tropimus. Paul is in Rome, essentially on death row, because he's appealed his case to Caesar. Before being in Rome, he was in Caesarea, when you read in the book of Acts. It was there between governors Felix and Festus that he says, after two years of being there in prison, he says, I appeal to Caesar to hear my case. And of course, the famous line, to Caesar you shall go. But before he was in Caesarea, in prison for two years, he was first arrested in Jerusalem when he went there. And it was while he was in Jerusalem that Acts chapter 21, 29 says, for they had previously seen, the Jews, had previously seen Tropimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, into the inner area, which was only reserved for Jewish men, which would have carried the death penalty had Paul actually done this. So they saw Paul hanging out with Tropimus, they know he's an Ephesian, and they just suppose, well, he's probably taking him and doing stuff he shouldn't be doing. With Tropimus. And that's what caused the whole mob reaction. That's how Paul found himself taken to Caesarea to be held for two years by the governor before he appeals his case to Caesar, which is where, of course, he's at right now. Tropimus. But Tropimus and Erastus were not unfaithful disciples. A lot of unfaithfulness. A lot of people deserting Paul, but these guys, they weren't like them. And he goes on to say, Timothy, verse 21, do your best to come before winter, which means that he probably wrote this letter in the spring. It would have taken three to four months to arrive in Ephesus, would have taken another three to four months for Timothy to travel from Ephesus to Rome. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as to Putin's and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers all the brothers, all these names are Latin, which perhaps indicates they were men from Italy and had been members of the church in Rome. And then, of course, he says, the Lord, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And that's it. That's the end. But it would kind of be anticlimactic if we just stopped right there, I suppose. I'm not much for anti-climatic endings. So what do we do? What are we to say? Well, I suppose we could say this letter is about persevering in the faith no matter how hard it gets. Yeah, no doubt. And that perseverance deals a lot with relationships. Relationships and people who have hurt us among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, Demas, Alexander the coppersmith, and even others that we don't know their names. And yet, in the midst of all that hurt and all that pain, he encourages Timothy to persevere. He models this amazing attitude of forgiveness toward these people. And yet, as we even discovered today, even when he is deserted, he says, God was there. God was there with me, even when they weren't. God is faithful. All would be appropriate observations to make at this point of 
the last 15 sermons. But there is one observation that I think we could easily make and that many people do make, which would be incorrect. Can you throw verse 16 back up there? No one came. No one came to stand by me. But who did? Verse 17. Throw it back up. The Lord stood by me. Let me just point this out. And I think this needs to be a warning to us. I think a lot of us would say, well, see, there you go. Jesus. Jesus never fails you. Jesus is always constant. Jesus will always be there. Even when those fallible, finite, failing friends leave you, he'll be there. Therefore, you don't need those friends. You don't need friends. Jesus is all I need. That's an observation I think that many people make. Whether they read this passage or not, there is a a common Lone Ranger mentality of Christians today. And to be honest, when I went to Liberty, I, I more or less had this kind of Lone Ranger mentality. This Jesus is enough. People are going to fail you. They're going to drop the ball. Therefore, I don't need people. I don't need the Christian friends. I just got Jesus. I've got the best online sermons from Piper to Chandler to everybody else. I could just listen to those sermons, okay? I can, listen, I can read my ESV study Bible every day and get more probably out of than any typical average sermon, which you should read your ESV study Bible. That's always good. My prayer life, I can do this. I can journal, whatever, okay? Just me and God. I don't need those Christian friends. But I would say that would be an incorrect observation to make because that's not what he says whatsoever. In fact, when you actually look at what he's saying, despite, despite, and oh, by the way, he has a reason to say that. If anyone had a reason, and some of you have been hurt by people before, especially people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be your friends. If anyone has a reason, it's this guy, Paul. Okay? And notice what he says. Verse 9, chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. Verse 21. Do your best to me to come before winter. Why? Because he loves Timothy. He loves Timothy. He wants to be around Timothy. He wants to hang out with Timothy. You say, well, that's just because it's Timothy. No, what, what about everybody else in this story? What about John Mark? What about Luke? What about Tychicus? What about Carpus? What about Priscilla and Aquila, Onesphorus, Erastus? What about Tropimus? What about Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia? Well, you say, okay, well, maybe that's just an exception because it's within this book of 2 Timothy. And in case you think that Paul only talks this way in this book, well, then you haven't read the rest of your Bible because he talks this way about friends a lot. In fact, to the Romans, he says, I long to see you. I really want to see you. Romans 11, Romans 15, 23, I have longed for many years to come to you. To the Philippians, he says, I love and long for my joy and crown. To the Thessalonians, he says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our very lives. If anybody had a reason to kind of keep people at an arm's distance, Kind of like arm, arm's distance away. If anybody had a reason, it'd be this guy. This guy's been hurt probably more so than any other Christian by people who claim to be Christians. He's been betrayed. He's been left. He's been abandoned. 
And if anyone, any, anyone had a good case to make to say, you know what, it's just going to be me and Jesus, and I don't need those friends because they're going to drop the ball and they're going to fail me, it would be this guy. And yet, that's not what he says whatsoever. Let me throw in a little John Piper right now to spice things up. And I quote, Jesus never intended that the enjoyment of him, and we should enjoy Jesus, he never intended that the enjoyment of his presence would replace the enjoyment of the presence of other Christians. Why does he want Timothy to come? Because he loves Timothy. He, wants, he loves Timothy. He enjoys spending time with Timothy. Christ did not die to create isolating, worshiping individuals. He didn't. He didn't die so that you could be a lone ranger Christian. He didn't die so that you could be a lone ranger Christian, have a great study Bible, listen to awesome online sermons, and do, have a great little prayer journal. He did not die so you could come and warm a pew once a week and check that box because your mom's going to get annoyed if she finds out you haven't been going to church. He died to create Christ-exalting friendships. Hopefully you know what those friendships are. If you don't, man, you're missing out. Those Christ-exalting friendships, and you can come, and you can gather, and, and you can sit with a couple other dudes and talk about more than just the Pyeongchang Olympics. You can talk about what God's been teaching you. Let me, let me, let me tell you, I've been, I've been reading through Matthew's Gospel. And, and the things I've been seeing about God are just amazing. And, and I've been really convicted of some areas of sin, especially when I was reading in Matthew chapter 21. Man, let me just show you this. Let me just tell you about this guy named Jesus. You were made to have Christ-exalting friendships, not to be lone ranger Christians. I understand that many of the reasons that people shy away is because they've got a chip on their shoulder from a legitimate hurt or pain that they probably have experienced similar to Paul. But Paul doesn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater whatsoever. That's why I often tell people, listen, you're missing out. If, if you're only coming on Sundays, you're so missing out. I tell people, you should come to small group. Why? You're missing out if you're not coming to small group. Like, you, you really are. You're missing out on deep, rich, Christ-exalting relationships. Okay? And, and it's, I don't mean like, oh, I had convo, or I had prayer groups. I don't mean that. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross, was buried and rose again to create convo. Okay? He, he didn't. He died on the cross to create the church. And much of the problem today when it comes to our mindset of the church is it's totally screwed up. And, and, and honestly, I still have to undo 31 years of like Christianese. How we, how we even, how our words very much frame our theology. Like, and you guys have heard me say this a lot, I'm going to go to church. No, you're not. You're not going to go to church. If you're, if you're, a Christian in here today, you did not go to church. Like, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A as if I'm going to go, I'm going to go to church as if church is a location. I'm not going to go to church. Church isn't a location I go to. Church is a, a people I gather with. 
But that's the problem because we have church framed up, even in our, in our vocab, as if it's this location, this event-oriented perspective that we go to and nothing more than that. You've got to see this. Don't miss this. It's way, way, way more than that. What are we doing here today? Well, the church, the local church, which of course is an expression of the global church, the church is gathering. That's what we're doing right now. Why? Because historically, since the time of Jesus' resurrection, the church has gathered on Sundays, the first day of the week, since that was the day he resurrected from the dead. What we're doing right now, we're gathering. But we don't just gather on Sundays. That's what we're doing right now. We are gathering together and worshiping God together. But we don't just gather on Sundays. We've got to really reframe this because we think of so much of our theology just comes from our, our view of the church. Like even like discipleship. You think about Peter, James, and John hanging out with Jesus. I use this example a lot, right? They go to synagogue because at that time they'd go to synagogue on Saturday. And you think about what never came out of Jesus' mouth. Peter, James, and John, that was a sweet time at synagogue. I'll see you next Saturday. But for many American Christians today, that's exactly how we live our life. Week to week, keeping everyone kind of at an arm's distance, never really getting all that close, never really being vulnerable, never allowing anyone to be vulnerable with us. We just come in, we say hi, we shake some hands, we leave, that's it, we'll repeat, do it again. Jesus never did it that way. That was never the model that Jesus gave to us. Jesus hung out with his disciples. Jesus played with his disciples. Jesus sometimes corrected them, right? Sometimes he corrected their theology like, Peter, get behind me. Peter, your theology is all jacked up right now. You don't understand, Isaiah 53, that the Messiah had to come and suffer. Like, your beliefs are kind of screwed up, Peter. So take a step back. Sometimes we need that, right? We need that. So, yeah, we're gathering right now, but you know what we did yesterday? We gathered yesterday, we prayed together yesterday, we ate together, and then we played together in that order. That's what we did yesterday. Some of us gathered, we prayed, we ate, and we played in that order. Not only is that a correct framework of the church, but I think it creates many avenues of discipleship. Oh, that we might think about the church in this way. You're not at church right now. You're gathering with the church right now. Uh, it's hard, right? Because, I mean, we, we've had this, like, in the way we talk, in our minds for so many years. It's like, okay, i got to undo that. i got to think differently. That church is not an event. Church is not a once-a-week thing. But rather, the church is a people of God, and we gather together. Why? Because that's why Jesus died, to create the church. It's not a man-made thing. He says, you're Peter upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. I'm building my church. Oh, that we might have the right view of it and not a screwed up one because we do. And much of the time that results in these sort of isolated Lone Ranger Christians. And I would say that's a problem. It's a problem for several reasons and I think one of them is just pure selfishness. Right? We say, I've been hurt before. No, I understand that. You don't want to get too close to people. You keep people at an arm's length. That's why you, 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 we probably only, you only ever come in ever so often. But it's selfish because not only 
if you really love Jesus, not only are you robbing people, you're robbing people of the opportunity to gather with you, to love you, to use their spiritual gifts. You're robbing them of an opportunity to bless you. Not only that, but you're not using your own spiritual gifts within the context of the local church. If you're a Christian, God's giving you gifts to use. And if you're a Lone Ranger, isolated Christian, you can see how, how keeping people at an arm's distance is just flat-out selfish. And I would say even disobedient to God. You, you very well might be sinning if you're violating Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25. You very well might be sinning if that is the sort of person that I'm describing right now, if that's you. You very well might be in violation of Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25. Let me be very, very clear. The Christian life is hard, and it requires understanding that our God is big. When we talk about perseverance, it's not because we're awesome, it's because God's awesome. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love of self-control. So persevere, even when people hurt you. May we have the mind of Christ. May we have that forgiving attitude. May we not cut ourselves off from Christian friendships and Christian community and keep people at an arm's length. What I'm saying is hard. I know. But it's not impossible. Oh, it would be if it was just up to you alone. But you have a big God, bigger than many of us even realize. And so as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. God, I pray, I pray that you would help us to love and cherish the church. Not a location, not a destination, not a building, but the people of God. That we would love and cherish them. That we would love and cherish Christian friendships and see the benefit and value. God, help those of us who have been hurt. Help me. I need help to have a forgiving spirit. As Paul says, may it not be charged against them. Help us, God. It's really hard, but we, we, we have to forgive them. And I pray that you'd protect us from selfishness. I pray that you'd help some of us to just be more mature because certain things compete for our attention. I pray that you would give us a greater love for you for your word and for Christian friends for the church some of us do a great job prioritizing our Bible reading or our prayer life but others of us we really struggle when it comes to prioritizing people and we need the people So help those of us, God, who are isolated worshipers of you. I know there's some people in here, they, they really, we really love you, but we've drifted and we're kind of doing this Lone Ranger Christian thing and, and we need not do that. Help us to be like Paul. And so, God, we join with St. Augustine as he would pray so many centuries before Lord, command what you will. You've given us a command. You've given us a directive. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. 
enable us. Help us remember that as hard as it is sometimes to persevere in all aspects of the Christian faith, that we're able to because of who you are. You're the one who has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. Help us not to forget just how big you are. Amen.